Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo Nilsson. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. I'm here today with Steen Wiedmann, Professor of Political Science at Uppsala University in Sweden, and also a leading Nordic scholar of Indian democracy and politics. Steen Wiedmann joins us today to discuss his new book, The Routledge Handbook of Autocratization in South Asia, of which he is the editor. It is a massive book of more than 400 pages, containing 30 individual chapters covering the entire region of South Asia. It's published by Routledge and will be out in November this year. The book was also pre-launched in late October at the annual ASEANet conference, the conference of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. Congratulations on this achievement, Steen, and thank you for joining us uh, to give us a sneak preview of the book's contents. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Steen, what is it about the current political conjuncture that makes a book such as this relevant and important, a handbook of autocratization in South Asia? Well, as you everyone knows, we have a very worrying downward trend in the level of democracy in the world today. And uh, according to Freedom House, for example, we are in the 15th consecutive year of a decline in democracy and freedom in the world. And the Democracy Project Varieties of Democracy, based in Gothenburg, reached basically the same conclusions. And maybe you saw in the spring here when the most recent report from Varieties of Democracy was launched, India is not a democracy anymore. And this is uh, such a vast country with uh, such a huge population. So this is a country which sort of, it has a heavy impact on what we mean by, when we talk about democracy in South Asia, it's very much India, right? But of course, other countries as well. But uh, when India goes down like this and is on its way to reach levels comparable to those during the emergency in the 1970s, this is very much worth focusing on. We have to try to understand the trajectory here. We have to try to maybe not explain in the extreme positivistic sense, but we have to place this in the context of the world decline of democracy as well. And there are a lot of things going on at the same time there. So what we do here is uh, we will go into the details of this, I know, but uh, from the overall perspective, when uh, India is falling, it, the rest of the world is uh, falling as well, right? Because it's such a such an important country. If we zoom in a little bit, could you tell us more about autocratization in the region and how it actually happens? I mean, what are the different strategies that we see different governments using to further autocratic forms of rule? Yes, it is something that needs to be taken apart here to some extent. We have to make sure that we capture what are the specific trends for each of the regions and the sub-regions and the countries themselves. But we can see clear commonalities as well. And these are important to compare to the rest of the world. And here we see that South Asia is in many respects not that different to many other parts of the world where there is a democratic decline. 
And these similarities are about the fact that when a government wants to initiate a process of autocratization, this is something which does not happen. This is willfully done and it's a strategic move. When that is happening, the freedom of the media is one of the first areas to be targeted. The free speech, freedom of the media, freedom of expression, these things are targeted first. And they are done targeted first together with civil society actors. But not all civil society actors. That's important to remember here. Because civil society is made up of many actors. William Shearer wrote about the decline of the Weimar Republic and um, the democratic attempt in the 1930s in, in Germany, right? And he already then noticed, he was a journalist there, an um, American journalist, and wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And um, he noticed then that many of the parts of civil society that we consider peaceful were incorporated very quickly into this totalitarian state that Nazi Germany then developed into. And that's an important thing to remember here as well, because civil society has for a long time been described and projected as a, as a good force in itself for providing democracy, right? Because there is a bias here. A lot of the social scientists like to study the organizations that think like themselves, and you get a selection bias from that. And uh, by not studying other things that actually fit the definition of civil society, we have ended up with a slightly distorted view of what society does. Civil society is a place for many kinds of actors. And the thing is, what is so dramatic about India is that what uh, Amrita Basu has shown already, and that is that the state... And the states within India, the leaders there, and certain civil society actors start to act in a coordinated way towards autocratization. And when they do that, a so-called perfect storm is created. Like, for example, what you saw in Gujarat in the early 2000s, right? This is happening on a more massive scale now in India, and that is how... The power of autocratization is so immense and does so much damage now to democracies that these are forces at very many levels of society at the same time. And this is how uh, we have seen developments in other places as well. But India is like the largest scale example that we have of this now. But the, the playbook for dismantling democracy is that attack the freedoms, the media, the civil society and so on. You can leave parties fairly intact almost. And this is uh, interesting because a lot of states today strive towards becoming hybrid regimes, right? And if you want to have a hybrid regime, because it's convenient to have that, because then you're not branded as a, an autocracy, right? You keep facades, you keep in certain institutions intact, the courts and the parties, and you can allow some media freedom, things like that. Surkov, who was the advisor for Putin when Putin came to power, he designed this and called it managed democracy. So this is done so that in India and South Asia in general too, a lot of regimes there leave some institutions intact which are supposed to work for democracy. And they focus on specific ones with methods that are you know, designed to it's scare tactics to a large extent. You select a few 
examples and make a statement with them, like in India with the Bhima Karagon case, for example, with activists being held in prison without fair trial right now. That's a perfect example of this. You hold them up and make sure that everybody sees how strong the state is and that if the state wants to, they don't need to have due process and working institutions for justice. So this is how it works. As the title of the book indicates, you cover in practice the entire region of South Asia. And the book shows also this general move towards autocratic rule across the board, one could say. But I wonder whether this indicates that there exists sort of a shared set of conditions across these countries that together drive this process, or whether we might be dealing with slightly more country-specific causalities with which then happen to converge today. Yes, I want to say that. I mean, that's a good point, because there are certain specific patterns within the countries that you should remember. And it's only, actually, the main focus of the book is India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Sri Lanka. But in the final chapter, we also discuss Nepal and Afghanistan also. Uh, so there is a larger cover there. But I think that um, there are very many different paths here. For example, Bangladesh, for example, it, it, it's been very volatile for a long time, right? And then it seemed to get some sort of democracy stabilizing for a short period, at least for like a decade or so. And then it was drastically dismantled like that. That is a, a bit of a specific pattern relating to one period. And in, in that sense, it has some similarities with Sri Lanka, right? And Afghanistan has almost always been, I mean, at the lowest level possible. But actually, after the year 2000, the level of democracy went up in an impressive way and stayed there until now, of course, because now it's down at the bottom again, unfortunately. Nepal is one of these volatile places as well, right? And Sri Lanka was in, in all these conflicts for a while, and then after the war stopped, or when the opposition basically was killed, and there was a time where there was a lot of people had a lot of high hopes here, have been having, and until recently, a lot of people have upheld these hopes for Sri Lanka too. But we can see some worrying distinctive traits here. But one doesn't need to be completely pessimistic about Sri Lanka, it's my personal opinion. The most drastic case is, I think, India again here, because India managed to stabilize for such a long time, right after independence, right? So it actually got up very quickly, together with Sri Lanka at a very impressive level. And then about at this, almost at the same time, India went into the emergency right after that. Sri Lanka had this more drastic decline in its democracy. But India managed to come back. India demonstrated resilience. And it was resilience towards stability. And so then from the emergency onwards, there have been ups and downs, absolutely. But there have been many ups in the process. And for example, during the 1990s, the Panchayati Raj reforms, impressive, world's largest reform project in, in the world, aiming at uh, decentralization and bringing more democracy into the country. And it did, too. I mean, the, the results are uneven. Bihar is not performing like Kerala, like everyone knows, of course. But the, there are so many good examples on how India managed to actually perform better One of the most significant areas had to do with gender equality also, because a lot of women came into decision-making bodies and so on. So that was a 
very impressive. And there was a decline before 2014 in India, a slight decline in democracy. That is true. But the most rapid decline starts in 2014. If we could dwell a bit more on this case of India, as you say now, I guess also in the popular imagination about South Asia as a whole, I guess it's fair to say that we know that countries such as Pakistan and Bangladesh have this history of military rule that has been far from democratic. We also know that, for example, Sri Lanka and Nepal have a history of more or less autocratic regimes in the past. But as you say now, India was for a long time hailed as the most sustained and most successful experiment in post-colonial democracy, not just in South Asia, but I guess anywhere in the world. Now, as you say, India is increasingly being described as an electoral autocracy or sometimes as a flawed democracy. What has actually happened in India? Yes, you're right here also. We shouldn't forget to mention Pakistan also, because Pakistan has its own peculiar path as well. And it's the very most, maybe the, well, with Bangladesh then also automatically, but India, Pakistan, Bangladesh are important to compare together because they were stuck together. So they constitute a natural experiment, which is fascinating, if one can say that actually, even though it contains so much tragedies, we can still learn so much in terms of regime development. But what happened with India? Well, yes, I mean, of course, we all know that the Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, came to power and it came into power in an unprecedented way, if you look at the support for them. And for a long time there in the 1990s, we thought that there would be a two-party system stabilizing, you know, where the Congress Party and the BJP would be about fairly equally the same size when it comes to voter support. And that would, you know, allow for coalitions being formed and you can see or prepare yourself for power going back and forth. But that changed rapidly in the last couple of decades here. So when uh, the BJP started to just expand way beyond the, the support of the Congress. And more, most important, the decline of the Congress party was absolutely devastating in, in this context too. So these two things happening at the same time, not only because of the same forces either. So that happened, and this explains why a party came to power, which is not dedicated to basic democratic principles. And at the level of the national government, this is manifested by its methods and its views and its way of rewriting the constitution now. So it's becoming more of an ethnic state. It's a state which allows other groups to be there still, but there is an ongoing project which aims at differentiating the rights of people depending on their, for example, religious belonging. So this is moving away very much from democracy in that way. But then you have also these local versions of the BJP, which are in some places like Uttar Pradesh, for example, are so much even more radical and who sees no limit to the power that they can exercise in their states. And these are states which are just turning into very hard autocratic regimes, which are ruthless towards any kind of opposition that they suspect or see. So this is um, something which is... uh, The BGP is not only one party in that way, because it has its uh, different varieties within the country too. And some of them are a little bit more moderate and so on, but some of them are quite radical. And when they have been in power now, and they also won the second election then recently, in 19, then the whole thing is accentuated. And this is why these strategies are being systematically employed 
to dismantle basic democratic institutions. The aim is taken with those institutions in the, in the aiming site. So this is not just happening because there is a decline in resources or some people are saying that this is a part of the neoliberal policies, things like that. Well, that's to some extent right, maybe, but it's not the... If you look at the numbers over time and you look at the, how the economy has been treated, things like that, in my judgment, this is a, a state-guided project and we need to be aware of this, I think. When it comes to Pakistan, there is a worrying trend too because we thought that Pakistan was for a while there on its way back as well, right? So the PTI was looking like an alternative, revitalizing democracy and things like that. That is unfortunately not true anymore. The PTI is not a better sort of Democrat than its predecessors or its competitors. So this is it's telling us something, and that is something we should discuss in relationship to the rest of the world as well. And that is that when we as researchers, as political scientists, have tried to assess the strength of democracy, we have too often relied on simplistic, simplified surveys asking people about their support for democracy, things like that. And when people have had democracy for a long time, and people automatically say that we prefer democracy, we assume that democracy is strong and deeply rooted. This is not true in the global south or in the west either, I think. We have much stronger institutions in, for example, Europe and the United States and so on. So even with a person like Trump in power, the USA is still a strong democracy, I would say, while in India, the institutions are weaker and that makes it much easier to uproot democracy. And the thing with attitudes among the population and so on, well, this is important to think about because, of course, democracy has to be in the mindset of people in order for it to work, right? But if you use scare tactics and you take away people's jobs and scare them to take away them or you do that, and you even threaten editors to burn down their offices and bury their companies that they have had for such a long time, publishing companies and things like that, it's very easy to make people stop talking and scare them into submission. That is what we learn. And we have seen that in so many other places as well. So it's not an India-specific thing or a South Asia-specific thing. This happens in, in so many places of the world. Interesting. Even though this is a book about South Asia, you also include uh, chapters that analyze the role of China as an actor in South Asia. What role does China play in these more regional processes of autocratization? There's one chapter mainly looking at China, and this is a chapter which Johan wrote, Lagerqvist, and uh, he's not as cynical as I am, <laughs> because he sees some hopes here that maybe the parts of South Asia can sort of try to move forward in a path they decide for themselves. I think that the way that China is expanding today and the way that Xi Jinping is looking at democracy as a liability, that creates a lot of worries. The way that China is sending strong signals that Taiwan will be reunited with China. And it's amazing that the media in the West is accepting that term. I mean, when they say reuniting Taiwan, they mean invading Taiwan and taking control of Taiwan. There's nothing else that they're talking about. So reuniting is a euphemism we should really watch out for here. But that is what's coming. 
And we see that China is pushing its borders with India in an aggressive way. And here it's important to point out that even though the BGP is not democratic, it doesn't have that kind of expansionistic ideas or agendas at all. India is just trying to protect the borders it has. But as you know, China has many, many claims on Indian territory. And Arunachal Pradesh, Makmahon Line, for example, and so on. Things will be become worse before it gets better there. I'm absolutely certain about that. And here, of course, the whole Belt and Road Initiative comes into play because uh, now Pakistan is working together closely with China and becoming more and more dependent on China. So is Sri Lanka. So is Bangladesh as well. So India is becoming isolated here in the middle. And such a, an important country being surrounded in this way, there will be conflicts because of this. There are already conflicts because of this. We have seen that in the border areas between India and China, for example. But it affects also the relationship to Pakistan, because Pakistan is a very strong ally. So India is frustrated from this. And when the regime becomes frustrated, it does irrational things. And this tension needs to go away for democracy to come back, I think, because somebody has to back out of this game to give oxygen to the basic democratic institutions that needs to be reinstated. Steen Wiedmann, thank you for joining us. And once again, congratulations on the Routledge Handbook on Autocratization in South Asia. It will be out in November or December this year, not only as a physical book, but also as an open access book. This means anybody can download the full contents from the publisher's webpage. My name is Kenneth Bonilson, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.